The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week is heritage in Ukraine being attacked and looted and what can be done to protect it. Plus the Cezanne blockbuster in Chicago and a work by the Moroccan-born artist Nicola L. I talked to the art newspaper's museums and heritage editor, Tom Seymour, who's been to the Ukrainian border with the NGO, the International Council of Museums, or ICOM, to witness museum materials being sent into Ukraine to help institutions there. Tom then talks to Sophie Dulapierre, the head of heritage protection at ICOM, about the organisation's efforts in Ukraine and elsewhere. As a major exhibition of the work of Paul Cezanne opens in Chicago, ahead of its journey to Tate Modern later in the year, I talked to Gloria Groom and Caitlin Haskell, the curators of the exhibition. And for this episode's Work of the Week, it's the second edition of London Gallery Weekend, and we talk about a work in one of the 150 galleries taking part in the event. Our acting digital editor Amy Dawson talks to Oliver Lanzenberg, the grandson of the artist Nicola L, about his grandmother's work Gold Farm Commode from 1969, which is part of a show at the Alison Jakes Gallery. Before all that, the art newspaper has a spring sale in which you can get a 50% discount on the complete and digital-only subscriptions. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and enter the promo code SPRINGPOD. That's all one word, all in capital letters, SPRINGPOD. Do also subscribe to this podcast, wherever you're listening now, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, there are increasing numbers of reports from Ukraine about the destruction and confiscation of heritage. This week, for instance, we reported that objects were being taken from museums in the largely Russian-controlled cities of Melitopol and Mariupol. Meanwhile, Ukrainian museums have had to decide what to do with their objects amid the war, and European museums have been sending materials to help them keep their collections safe. Our museums and heritage editor, Tom Seymour, last week travelled with the International Council of Museums, or ICOM, to Krakow in Poland to see some of this work first-hand. He also spoke to Sophie de la Pierre, the head of heritage protection at ICOM, about the situation in the war-torn country. Before we hear that interview, I spoke to Tom about his journey to the Ukrainian border and what can be done to monitor heritage in the country and prevent its destruction. Tom, you're just back from the Ukrainian-Polish border. What were you doing there? I was the only journalist with some colleagues of International Council of Museums and they had organised for a truckload of donations, materials that had been gathered from various different museums in France on this occasion, and that truck had been driven to the Polish border with Ukraine and and was being taken into Ukraine to distribute um, to various different museums who are obviously in desperate need right now as a result of the war. Um, what, What sort of materials do you mean? Mostly protective materials, a lot of bubble wrap and a lot of like wooden casing because a lot of museums are making the decision to take everything down from the walls and put it in the basement or they're actually taking it out of museums and hiding it in other spaces in Ukraine to protect it from Russian forces. Okay, and so did you sort of witness much beyond that? Set the scene, as it were. What were you actually looking at while you were there? We flew into Krakow. We drove about three hours to the border and we hung about for a bit. And then the truck turns up to this like massive warehouse hangar and is unloaded by a bunch of guys who are 
pretty much on their gap year. They were in their early 20s. They were drinking tinnies and kicking a football around. And, you know, they were basically sleeping in tents in this hangar. And, and this huge truck that had driven from Paris turned up and I kind of helped them unload it and then I didn't actually see it being taken into Ukraine myself but as we were leaving another truck appeared that was going to then drive into Ukraine itself and and distribute the materials. Did ICOM give you any details about exactly who was helping which organisations were helping in terms of providing these materials? Lots of different museums right across Paris but um, my understanding is that ICOM UK are, are right now organising for museums across the UK to also deliver a truckload of donated materials. The same thing is happening in Spain and Italy and right across Europe. And in terms of what you were told about the museum's activities in Ukraine now, obviously you said about the packing materials, you said they're making these decisions. Was there anything that was told to you about sort of policy, about ICOM policy in response to that? Were ICOM in Ukraine helping these movements of the works of art or were they at a certain distance? There are ICOM officials working in Ukraine. There are lots of different small organisations working on conjunction of each other. There's the Heritage Emergency Rescue Initiative, who are also based in Ukraine, who are also working very, very closely with ICOM. It's worth saying that the Ukrainian Culture Ministry has decided not to evacuate a lot of artworks, and they're trying to basically keep it in Ukraine and keep it as safe as possible without actually evacuating it from the country. That seems to be a pillar of of policy that's come from the Ukrainian government and ICOM and the other organisations are having to respond accordingly to that decision. Um, What else did you see while you were in the area? It was a really strange and very moving experience. We were at a reception point there called Medica and right next to Medica is a camp, a refugee camp, which is obviously primarily full of women and children because men can't leave Ukraine Someone said a very moving thing, which is don't move old trees, which was referring to the fact that a lot of Ukrainian people of a certain age have decided to to stay in Ukraine and, and not leave. So the refugee camp itself was mostly populated by women and their children. And what was actually very striking about that as, as an arts journalist is that you know, they'd been displaced from their homes and had to leave their husbands and their parents. They got to this refugee camp and the first thing they'd done is, is create artwork with their kids. There's lots of artwork inside the, uh, the tents. What kind of artwork did you see while you were there? So there was a massive Ukrainian flag with children's and adults' handprints that had been, you know, they dipped their hands in blue paint and yellow paint and created a, a huge Ukrainian flag in the shape of a heart. There was lots of embroidery and tapestry and sewing that happened quite a lot. I mean, it was lots of different things. There was abstract paintings, there was children's paintings. It was really, really fascinating. And, and what was the mood like in the camp when you were there? Well, what was very striking... In general, it was the number of people trying to get back into Ukraine. The queue of cars trying to get back into Ukraine was, was miles long. A lot of people are basically making the decision to, to try and reunite with their families again and go back into Ukraine. Now the fighting is not as fierce as it was. And the camp itself felt quite quiet. What was striking about the whole experience is how normal it felt and how abnormal it felt, how humdrum it felt, whilst also being very intense at the same time, you know, if you looked around, there were all these signs of, of pain and displacement and the kind of incredible journeys that people had been on. But it was a, a quiet spring day in rural Poland. There were like farmers plowing their fields and so on. But then when I was walking around, I, I saw these like old abandoned cars like left on the side of a road. And I said to our driver, Norbert, I said, oh, what does it say on the side of that? And uh, he said, oh, it says children. They'd spray painted children onto the side of these cars. And they'd obviously just driven over the border and then abandoned the cars, you know. So it was a very intense, potent place, whilst also being 
very sort of quiet and, and bucolic as well. And one of the other things that was striking to me is that quite close to the refugee camps in the villages surrounding it, one of the villages is called Shemizel, which translates into English directly as Think About It, which I thought was really interesting. And these white storks that had migrated from Africa had sort of turned up and were basically nesting these huge nests a metre wide on telegraph poles. And for Polish people, and apparently they, they nest in Ukraine as well, this is seen as a real sort of sign of hope, a sign of renewal, you know. Uh, the stork is like the legendary animal that brings babies um, and fertility, you know. So I found that very kind of metaphorical and powerful. So let's set the scene for the conversation we're about to hear with Sophie Delapierre from ICOM. Obviously, we're hearing quite a lot now about the fate of heritage in Ukraine, but a lot of it is pretty uncertain, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a chaos of war. It's, it's very, very difficult to exactly verify what's happening. There's obviously loads of disinformation flying around from both sides. But we are hearing from museums and from city councils and from Ukrainian sources, government sources, that the Russian forces are trying to loot or destroy heritage sites in Ukraine. We're seeing lots of reports from Mariupol City Council, from Mariupol's Museum of Local History, for example, of Russian forces going in and essentially looting lots of gear and taking it back to, to Russia. And one of the things that we'll hear Sophie say is that at the moment it's about information gathering. She can't be precise about what exactly is happening, but it is crucial to be precise ultimately, isn't it? Because there's a difference between heritage which is destroyed or looted as a sort of an effect of war and heritage which is destroyed or looted as a sort of programmatic deliberate decision as part of war because then you get into real war crimes territory absolutely yeah yeah and it's people uh, like sophie like her colleagues people working on the ground are, are going to enable us as journalists and you know governments the international community as a whole to really understand what's properly happened here and to verify the information properly and then to as you say hopefully hold people to account in the fullness of time okay well let's hear then from sophie de la pierre from icom tom was in conversation with her just a moment ago Sophie, pleasure to speak to you. I was at the Polish border with Ukraine last week, and I watched a truck of donations go into Ukraine that was organised by your colleagues at the International Council of Museums. Can you give us a sense of what museum professionals are doing in Europe to support Ukrainian colleagues, and how is that being coordinated at the Ukrainian border with Poland? In fact, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, uh, end of February, the mobilization of ICOM national committees, uh, international headquarters, as well as museum committee in general, has been extremely important. So what you saw at the Polish border last week, it's only one part of the many, many activities that have been taken so far. And I have to admit that myself, that working in ICOM, um, I know what the network can do for the uh, colleagues in general, in many activities all along a year. But I have to say that um, since the beginning of this crisis, the mobilization, the solidarity between colleagues and institutions have been, for me, not surprising, but I'm still really grateful to the museum community to do that. So what you saw in the border last week, it was a truck coming with material. In fact, it was, if I remember well, from France this time, from France to Poland, with the help of the uh, Polish national authorities. 
And then it was after that taken by another truck coming from Ukraine, taking the material to dispatch to the right museum. And there again, and I have to underline the incredible work done by museum colleagues from Ukraine, while they are extremely under pressure, they are still taking the time and, and maybe, I don't know, put their life in danger just to be able to bring this material to the museum in need. And I have to say that it's extremely courageous and have to be underlined and give visibility. So what you are doing today, it's, it's really important. I think so. Thank you. It's very important what you're doing as well. There's been a lot of reports in the press of Ukrainian heritage pieces and art being destroyed and looted in Ukraine. And it's difficult to sort of get a sense whether this is a coordinated strategy by the uh, Russian forces or just a random result of the chaos of war. Do you have any sort of sense of of what's going on in there? How widespread is illicit trafficking of artwork in Ukraine? Well, in fact, your question is quite difficult because as many other international organisations, we are mainly now monitoring the situation and we are trying to gather information and we have also to, to check the information received. From what you ask about coordinated looting or theft or looting, I have to admit that I, that's not some information that I have. But what we know from experience in ICOM and in many other organizations, I, I have to say for decades of work on the fight illicit trafficking, is that every conflict Every war, you have traffic of objects. Why? Because cultural objects are vulnerable per se, because they are objects, they are movable, it's easy to, to transport, to put in other countries, to cross border easily. And generally, such objects are extremely valuable and so can be gone on the uh, black market and be part of the traffic. So... I do not have this information. Is it coordinated or random? In any case, it is stolen or loot, stolen from museum or, or loot uh, on archaeological sites. And that only this line make necessary that the international community in general take coordinated action to fight that. It can be the police with Interpol. It can be the customs with the World Custom Organization. It can be huge uh, coordinated agencies such as UNESCO. So you can see there are many actors. The importance is that we go together to find the right way to fight. And that is the most important thing. Now, at short term, because it's happening now, but we all know that this topic will be gone for years. Because when the war is stopped and it will be the time for reconstruction, it will still be a vulnerable state for, for the country. And so the traffic might continue. It's because we are doing now, in an emergency, we are already thinking for your future. Your organization is developing a red list right now. Yes. Do you want to tell our listeners what a red list is? Sure. There are lists of objects which are at risk. They are vulnerable. Right. And they are not stolen objects. For stolen objects, I'm always extremely clear. When an object is inventoried, and stolen. It should be reported by police to the Interpol because they have a huge database of works of art stolen and they should put, be there. But there are many cases, and for a long time we know that there are many cases when the report is not done or more than that, in, there is no inventory for many reasons. It's not because of in museum, it's in many cultural institutions inventory are not complete. We know that something has been stolen, we don't have picture, etc. etc. Or 
Another big case in this area of fighting traffic is the archaeological sites. Of course, if the objects are in the site, they are not inventoried. So how can we alert the international community about vulnerable objects? Well, red list is one tool. Why? Because we are doing that for 20 years. The first one is, was in 2000. And really, it was at the time, again, in discussion with many international organizations, we were thinking, how can we alert about a problem in a country when we don't have inventory and we don't know what happened on the archaeological sites? Well, red list is one of the answer because inside the red list, us, the museum expert, they are thinking about identifying categories of objects at risk. So they take one object in the collection and they say, that is circulating, that is protecting in my country, and that is vulnerable. So me, in my country, I'm telling you all the world, if you see that circulating, I don't say it's stolen, I say it's vulnerable. So open your eyes, double check the document, because it is in a red list. So you have to be careful. That's what are for the red list. So you're putting this emergency red list together at um, record pace. It normally takes years to put a red list together. This is being put together in a space of weeks. What are the challenges incumbent in, in putting a red list together so quickly? Well, generally, a normal, well, I would say one year. Why? Because we are taking time, you know, discussing between the experts about this category, that category. No, this object image is better to show the category. You know, it's taking time. And we have to never forget that ICOM members, they are person volunteers to the association. They have their own work. So they do that on a volunteer basis. It's really important to say so. So that's why generally we take time. We have meeting, they have time to work on their side and they come back to us. There is an exchange But in an emergency, as you said, no time for all of that. So all the challenge is to do the same qualitative work while we don't have the same time. So that's where all the challenge is. But we do that with people willing to work with us in the team, expert team, to meet, to to discuss, to exchange, to be volunteer, to work with us. But I have to say that just before the interview that we are doing for the moment, I just, in fact, I saw that we are mainly doing emergency red list. Indeed, the last red list published last year, the regional one was for Southeast Europe, and we had time to do it. But all the previews, namely 2018 Yemen, 2016 West Africa for Mali, 2015, Libya and the update of Iraq, and 2013, Egypt, all of them are emergency red lists. So it's also a proof that, unfortunately, cultural objects are really at risk in every place, and ICOM is willing to work to protect it. With our means, we don't say that it will resolve everything. Far from that, but it's important to see that Unfortunately, the last one have been all emergency, except one. There's a lot of reports about Ukrainian artwork being evacuated from Ukraine, being taken out of Ukraine, um, kept in other countries as safekeeping. At the Venice Biennale this year, there was Ukrainian artwork on show, uh, exhibited, that had been taken out of the country. But this is a really complex thing, because when do you return the works to a war zone? What what are we going to find when we take the works back to their original homes in Ukraine? So there's a restitution issue there. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, it is true that some museums in the world have been exhibited of Ukrainian objects, in fact, to raise awareness. It was a, like an act of, yes, we participate. We told earlier that some countries choose to send material. Well, other countries or other museums, they choose to take from the collection some objects of Ukraine to show the public, listen, that happened. It's like a gesture, you know, a beautiful gesture to raise visibility. What you say is something else. It's, you say about evacuation. I have to say that in ICOM, we do not have information about evacuation, even if as soon as the war begin, and I have even to tell you before the 24th of February, because we worked before that with Ukrainian colleagues, we discussed with them many possibilities, many actions. One of them was evacuation. And I have to say that they were really clear. Such evacuation, if there is one, it will be the decision of the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture. One and only. That's purely their decision. Of course, we completely respect that. There is no nothing else to say. So, That's what our position in ICOMS to say. That is a possibility. You take it or you leave it. It's absolutely your right and you are right to do so. The only point we are doing is that we try to be sure that in case one day this decision is taken by the ministry, then the museum community once again will be there to bring assistance. And there are already many, I can tell you, many museums who already offer for storage, for depot, for, you know, a place that cover all the museum criteria for conservation, of course. And many of them are already offered to storage if a decision in this direction is taken and only if. And that our Ukrainian colleagues are really clear and I think they are really right that it will be only the decision of the national authority, which is completely understandable. Ukraine has dominated virtually every headline since the war started two months ago. But there are obviously other conflicts taking place around the world concurrently, you know, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen. So ancient art and heritage sites are at risk all the time, all across mm -hmm. the world. What more can we as a museum community do to assist other conflicts in these other conflict zones that are, that are down the, the news headlines? Well, of course, I have to admit that for the moment, the work of uh, my department, the Heritage Protection Department, is really focusing on Ukraine, which is once again, you know, the moment and we have to be there for our colleague and the museum institution. But we absolutely don't forget the other country or other uh, ICOM national committees. And as you said, there are some of them that are still and continue, unfortunately, to, to be at risk and to be in conflict zone. And absolutely, we don't forget about them. We continue to work with them. But I have to say that It's really something that we hear all the time in expert, and I'm 100% agree, is that each country, each conflict, each war different. Always there is something different in the context, in the target, in the duration. There are always, always something different. Mm. So we need to adapt. And what is great about NGO as ICOM and a network so big in the same times that we are perfectly able to adapt and to see exactly where we are relevant. We cannot do everything, but when it's happened between countries and museum institutions, I believe we have a strength really particular and really relevant. And if I can speak about, you know, one other 
conflict that we are following, or not a conflict, but a, a follow-up of a previous situation if Afghanistan. Afghanistan, for example, our red lists were ready in the beginning of the decades 2000. So it's a, a red list because I didn't say it earlier, but a red list is for many years after the conflict. It's for really long time because the traffic will continue. Well, it's exactly what happened for Afghanistan. The Afghanistan Red List were prepared, were shared. And then last year in August, as you remember, there were this new situation in the country. Then what we did, we give again visibility to this Red List. We put it in front side our communication tools. The communication department sees this tool from ICOM and put it again, the visibility on the website, social media, etc. And they also succeed to make a partnership with Wikimedia. And like that, we have a new tribune to show this Red List. And again, to say to the person, like we said many years before, we continue to say, if you see some Afghan cultural object circulating, be careful because we say that it's at risk. So it's an example among many others about an other situation. And finally, I understand that ICOM are offering shelter for Ukrainian museum workers. Obviously, millions of people have, have fled the country, many of whom are working in the museum sector. Can you give us a sense of, of what ICOM are doing to offer shelter and work placements for, for Ukrainian people that have been displaced? And if anyone listening wants to get involved and potentially help a Ukrainian museum professional to work and to live in the UK or other countries around Europe, what can they do? Like, where should they look to, to get involved? Yes, this question of hosting or, you know, welcoming the Ukrainian professional was a question Immediately or so, thinking between the uh, ICOM network, I really, I think it's really important for me here to underline the huge work made by ICOM Poland, because as you know, Poland is the country who received the most of the refugees. And among the refugees, some Ukrainian, mainly, you know, women with children, and among them, some people from the museum world looking, you know, for help or so. And what made ICOM Poland to raise funds, to try to have grants for temporary work within Polish institution, museum in particular. It's absolutely incredible. And I have really to, to say that the work, the mobilization is huge. Of course, I speak about ICOM Poland because they are the closest one. And even as for the material, they have been extremely involved. But once again, the mobilization and the solidarity is much more than that. Regarding the possibility of having Ukrainian museum colleague in institution, I could also speak about proposal made by museum in France, museum in Italy, museum in Spain. And recently I have also uh, some news from Mikom Latvia about the exactly same subject. How can we help even a temporary help? But we, we want to be able to welcome them, to host them, to say, okay, you are welcome here for a few months. We can work together also. It's important that our Ukrainian colleagues feel like they are part of a network, they are part of this solidarity, that their people are there for them. And when I have I come Ukraine, I'm working especially on the red list, they recall that how they appreciate and they feel supported. And for me, it's really important to say it 
again when I have the other national committee, I say, oh, you know, by the way, they are telling us that they appreciate and they are really counting on us. And, and we need to pursue this collaboration because I have also to say that what ICOM Ukraine is doing in their own country, given the situation, is quite incredible. The action they do to protect their own heritage, to protect their own people, it's it's extremely important. And on your last question about what can we do if I'm a museum person somewhere and I want to help? Well, there are many, many initiatives. I just wanted to underline one, which is quite easy to see, is um, we have been contacted by NEMO, which is an association of European Museum, because they were exactly doing that. They were gathering initiatives and putting them on the website. And they asked ICOM to support the initiative, what we did, by the way. And if you go on the page, you can see all the range of things done by museum. It can be from the organization of concert, organization of exhibition, the ticket from entry that they want to give for donation at the later stage. As I say, exchange with Ukrainian professional, gathering material. I also saw that some of them are gathering not only material for museum, but material for health, for humanitarian help. They are doing that. So it's really huge. And I believe that at every level we are capable, to, we are able to, to help. If we want some ideas and best practices, we can go and see, for example, this website and you will see the variety. And I, again, I'm sorry to repeat the name, but the huge mobilization the museum community and ICOM network, but not only, museum community in general are doing for Ukrainian museum. And I think everybody can be part of that. Sophie, thanks for your important work and thanks for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. You'll be able to read Tom's full report into ICOM's work for Ukraine in the next print edition of the art newspaper from the 1st of June. And the organisation Sophie mentioned was NEMO, that's the Network of European Museum Organisations, and they can be found at ne-mo.org. Coming up, we hear about the Cezanne exhibition in Chicago and about Nicola L's Femme Commode. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A Gustave Courbet landscape painting in Cambridge's Fitzwilliam Museum is likely to have been looted by the Nazis in occupied France. As Martin Bailey reports, a restitution claim has just been submitted to the UK Spoliation Advisory Panel. La Ronde Enfantine, children dancing beneath the trees at Port Berteau, was donated to the museum in 1951. Martin's inquiries suggest it may well have been acquired as looted art by Hitler's deputy Hermann Goering, following a picture swap with the Nazi foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop. The Fitzwilliam was until recently unaware of what had happened to the painting during the 1933-1945 Nazi period, but our research suggests that it may well be a work then entitled Forest Scene, which is listed in a US Army report of 15th of August 1945 on art spoliated by the German occupiers in France. An Andy Warhol portrait of Marilyn Monroe sold at Christie's on Monday for $195 million with fees. Shot Sage Blue Marilyn of 1964 hammered for $170 million to the art dealer Larry Gagosian. As Judd Tully reports, it almost doubled the previous Warhol record set at Sotheby's New York in November 2013 with a silver car crash painting from 1963, which fetched $105.4 million. The total sale at Christie's of the late Swiss art siblings Thomas and Doris Amann reached $270 million, or $317.8 million, with fees. 
a collection of NFTs or non-fungible tokens from the archive of the great photographer August Sander, launched in February, has been taken offline due to a copyright dispute. The August Sander 10K collection was driven by the August Sander family estate, which is run by Julian Sander, an art dealer and gallerist based in Cologne, who co-represents the August Sander estate with the Swiss gallery Hauser & Worth. But the archive was delisted from the NFT platform OpenSea following a copyright claim from SK Stiftung Kultur, a Cologne-based non-profit cultural foundation which claims it holds the copyright to the archive until the 20th of April 2034. The forthcoming court case could set a new precedent, one that may have widespread ramifications for the many photographers grappling with how to enter the emerging NFT market. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can get from the App Store or Google Play. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This May, the American Art Department at Christie's New York presents its curated auction of 20th century paintings, works on paper and sculpture, and the dedicated sale Stewards of the West, the Knobloch Collection. Engage with masterpieces by iconic names such as O'Keefe, Dove, Rockwell and Friska. Then discover the Knobloch Collection and continue along its trail with Thomas Moran's painting of Yellowstone, landscapes by Albert Bierstadt, depictions of Native American life and Frederick Rimming masterful bronzes such as the Bronco Buster. Find out more at Christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, on the 15th of May, the Art Institute of Chicago opens the first major survey of Paul Cezanne's work in the United States in a quarter of a century. It features 80 oil paintings, 40 watercolours and drawings, and two sketchbooks, and reflects the range of his work across six decades, including his dark and difficult early work, the Impressionist landscapes made alongside Camille Pissarro, and his best-known series, the watercolours and oil paintings of Mont Saint-Victoire, his portraits of his wife and father, his bather scenes, and, of course, his apples. It includes both major museum works and rarely seen pieces from private collections. It was planned with Tate Modern to where the show travels in the autumn and where it was co-curated by Natalia Sidlina and Akim Borchardt Hume, who tragically died last year. I spoke to the exhibition's curators in Chicago, Gloria Groom and Caitlin Haskell, about the show. Gloria, I just wanted to begin by talking about Akim Borchardt Hume, who was a guest on this podcast once and sadly died while this show was being put together. But the show and the catalogue are dedicated to him. I just wondered if you wanted to say a few words about Akim. Well, we certainly wanted to dedicate the catalogue to him. He's been the driving force. He and I went to the south of France and I just got to know him. And he kept coming up with really good ideas for us because his range of knowledge is so broad and he was really a great partner in our thoughts and our beginnings and preparations for this exhibition, as well as helping us negotiate loans. I mean, he's been a part of it. He wasn't an author except for the introduction, but he was very much involved in it, body and soul, throughout. And we really felt that this catalog should be in his memory. First of all, it's an incredible privilege to be able to collaborate with Akim, you know, whose exhibitions I, I truly admire. I think for me, Akim really had this desire, which I shared, to to present Cezanne's work in the present tense, you know, to show him as we would an artist who is living and working today, and to really respect the work and allow it to speak on its own terms to us now. I only wish that he could see our exhibition, because I think, you know, walking through with Natalia and Gloria yesterday, there is a lot of Akim present in the exhibition still. 
Oh, that's lovely to hear. Let's talk about the show then. One of the things that you say early on in the catalogue is about the myths and cliches surrounding Cezanne. Gloria, can you say something about perhaps what those myths and cliches are and what you're doing to challenge them? Well, well, there are several cliches. One, that he spent most of his time in the South, that when he went to Paris, he was an outsider. And we know that for a fact that's not true. We know there's lots of connections that he had. And so we wanted to push that. But we also wanted to explore some of the things that are said about him, artist, artists. And that to us seemed like a critical piece of the history to really flesh that out. Why is he an artist, artist? Who are the artists who were drawn to him then and now? And so you'll see in the exhibition, we've really stressed that by putting this painting was owned by artist Claude Monet, for example, artist Edgar Degas. And to Caitlin's point, I think that brings him into a different conversation for artists today, that he goes up and we have 10 artists who have spoken to his works that are known now. And that adds another dimension and really brings it up to our time. And why did we want to do Cezanne? What is his relevance now? Right. Can we say something to begin with about his time and and where he sits in his time, Caitlin? To what extent was he a man who documented his present, who responded to his present? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, a Cezanne painting is itself a, a document of sensations felt in the moment. But what's interesting is that Gloria and I have really thought about him as an artist who he has a 19th century context and he has a 20th century context. And if there's any single painter who really connects what 19th century modern painting is with the 20th century historical avant-garde, it's Cezanne. So because your question is a little bit about chronology, our show in parts, it's chronological, but it's really difficult to date Cezanne's work with great precision. And so I would say sort of loosely, the first half of the exhibition is 19th century Cezanne, you know, in a sense. And then the second half of the exhibition is, you know, looking at his series, thinking about him working in, in this serial way that begins to look quite non-objective and abstract in ways and kind of takes us into a, a 20th century understanding of modernism. Um, tell us about the reception of Cezanne's work in its time, Gloria, because he was an artist of the refusal, as Caitlin's essay says. So he experienced a great deal of criticism in his lifetime, but the artists around him always admired him. Is that right? Yes. I mean, he's kind of the odd man out. I mean, he does get involved with the Impressionist enterprise and they're all kind of working in the same ideas of capturing modern life. And so he's peripherally part of them because of his association with Bissarro and he gets to know Renoir. But he does refuse to follow any kind of formula, even an approach to nature. I mean, he's going to do it on his own terms. He's going to do it with his own expression of sensation. There are moments in art history where like Monet would not be Monet if he hadn't had that summer with Manet and Renoir would not be Renoir. And there's that summer and there's that year with Pissarro that makes Pissarro Pissarro and makes Cezanne Cezanne. I mean, it's a critical moment. And we show that in the exhibition, just what he was doing. He was kind of all over the place, but at the same time, he was very much trying to learn as quickly as possible and absorb this new kind of painting, and then he bypasses it in his own way. He goes further than that. So in terms of what we know, there's so little about him during that time because, as we say in the catalog, the younger artists were the ones that visited him. So we just have remarks like Renoir later on saying that he can't put a stroke or two on on a canvas without it being a masterpiece. We have that. And we know that they bought his works. And so those are the kinds of things we know, but we don't have a lot of description about 
what it was in Cezanne, the risk taker, that attracted them so much and challenged them. I mean, I think one thing that we can say with great certainty is that fellow artists were the most important audience for Cezanne's painting in his lifetime. The legacy of the Cezanne effect, you know, beginning after the Salon de Tum 1907, I mean, the impact of that exhibition is really profoundly felt. I guess what's interesting about Cezanne's work is that so much of it is known after the fact, out of the context where he himself would be present and, and speaking about it, you know, where his works are always beginning a conversation about how a painting is made, but we don't necessarily have him narrating that conversation. You know, it's, it's other artists, it's other critics saying, wow, this is a deeply weird painting. This is a painting that's doing so many things wrong that maybe it's starting to do a few things right. And that really, I think, is what's wonderful about you know, thinking about him as an artist with effects on both the 19th century and the 20th and 21st. And what do we know about his technique and his approach, Gloria, in terms of, you know, there were sort of nomic statements, the cylinder, the cone, the sphere, etc. These things which give us clues, but take us up blind alleys, etc. So what do we actually know about the way that he made his works? Did he have a consistency of method? Well, again, he didn't really talk about his work. And uh, so it wasn't until the very end when younger, younger artists were sort of recording every comment he made and bowing to him in awe that we get some of them. But we still don't know if it's Bernier Bernard speaking about Cézanne through his own needs for a kind of symbolist art or if it's Maurice Denis who's thinking about him as a kind of liberator. But I think what he was was a liberator of art. And I think you know, the weirdest thing as I went through the exhibition yesterday, because there are repetitive and regenerative forms that you see from the very beginning, the curtain and the white cloth, and then they become kind of topographical. And there is a kind of Proustian, and I, I can't say Proust and Cezanne have anything in common, except that they were absorbing and coming to their own truth throughout their life. And it really shows up at the end. It's kind of like then they make their move into what we understand is the true artist who was the bridge to the 20th century. Unfortunately, he didn't write a ton of letters, and his letters don't talk about, well, I made this today, and this, you know, Monet's, I, I was out there, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and this is the color I used for this and this. We don't have that. But what's exciting about the exhibition is that we do have his palette of watercolors at the end of his career, and we have a palette that was left in his studio. So... You know, that does help us have the artist present. And, and Caitlin, in terms of the way that you approach the different motifs, the very famous motifs like the apples, for instance, and the Mont Saint-Victoire and the bathers, I'm interested in the way that you may contrast that with the show of sort of 25 years ago, which was very much sort of building up to this grand moment where you ended with the big room of the bathers and the big room of the Mont Saint-Victoire. Do you sort of build it in the same way or in a way do you complicate that kind of almost linear process that that exhibition presented? Our exhibition is really not linear. We started out from the beginning wanting to work across medium and across genre. And the exhibition actually begins with a group of five landscapes. And we did this to invite visitors to sort of slow down, get ready for the particular pacing where we're really asking people to look at just one or two pictures together. Again, walking through yesterday, I was kind of brought back to Kirk Varnado's term of pictures of nothing. And we kind of begin with these landscapes because they're not about the most famous motifs. You're not seeing something recognizable like a Mont Saint-Victoire or a large bathers group. These are trees. These are alleyways. And what that does is encourage the visitor to 
think about each mark and really begin focusing on how the pictures are constructed, which is the question that Cezanne is asking himself across this period. And we take you from the 1870s all the way to the early 20th century. And one of the things that happens there, you know, you're talking about, is there a stylistic progression? I mean, yes, we do see the heavy impasto start to dissipate. And yes, we then start to see these short staccato brush strokes. Then we start to see the marks becoming very large relative to the overall size of the picture. You get all of that in the first gallery. But the other thing that starts to happen is that you're aware of two things taking place. You're aware of the illusion of the picture, but then you're also aware of the reality of the literal mark in your space. And that is just something we, we don't do it, you know, in, a, in an overt way. We're not trying to be didactic, but there's just enough there to get you to become aware of these two senses of space, these two senses of, of reality in the way that Cezanne is, is drawing our attention to the materiality of his stroke. And then obviously so much of what you just described is bound up in how artists have responded to him ever since. And I want to explore that a bit. You mentioned the contemporary artists. I want to talk about that interim period. You mentioned his contemporaries a bit. Can we talk about the modernist artists? So the way that he influenced those figures that immediately followed him, that sort of were alive for his final few years and saw the Salon d'Automne show that you talked about in 1907, etc. But I wanted to begin with Matisse because Matisse, of course, had that bathers picture which you have in the show and this curious phrase that Matisse talked about him and his family gathering around it him going to look at it first thing in the morning but he always talked about its moral importance Mm -hmm. to him Gloria what did he mean by the moral importance of Cezanne I think honesty was what the artist saw in Cezanne this sense of sincerity besides the risk-taking but that it's his vision, it's his truth, but it is hard won. I mean, I love that painting, but there are other bathers that were owned by artists. And I think he's liberated the human body from any kind of tradition, and he's given them new paths to follow in their own work. But I think his work ethic is somehow expressed in those strokes, as well as his personal emotions. So they're very humanistic. At the same time, as Caitlin was saying, they're very materialistic about the way he's made that painting, that composition. By limiting himself to these themes of landscape, portrait, bathers, and limiting even his materials and even his scale until the very end, he's challenged himself. So he's no longer looking to Manet to get him going or to Pissarro. He's looking to himself to make the next step, to make the next stroke, so to speak. He's an artist of incredible integrity, and I think one of the paradoxes, I would say, of his work is that he did not set out to be revolutionary, right? I mean, he was looking to make pictures with a radical honesty to them and to show his work. And, you know, if an illusion is not going to hold together, he'll allow it to fall apart on its own. And I think for Matisse and even for the artists who are writing about the works now, I mean, that commitment to really, you know, following your vision and trying to find what your language is, even when the impressionists are saying, this is not really working, you know, other people are saying, I'm not really following this, you're being refused, you're being rejected at every turn, but to continue and ultimately to find that voice, which just opens up everything that that painting is going to be about, you know, for the 25 years following his death. That's right. And in terms of Picasso's response, it seems to me that it was a means to have a sort of continuum with the past, but to also radically break with it at the same time. And it seems to me he got a lot of that from Cezanne. 
Well, I think that, that especially in the early 20th century, when artists were looking for a way to reconnect with the classical tradition, I mean, this was Cezanne, who was always trying to make himself a link, as he said, a link in the tradition, not a break. And so, yeah, I think, as I said, he just broke so many rules and yet offered so many pathways. And Picasso was quoted many times, he's the father of us all, which I love. I love that statement. And so our exhibition was partly based on that. And Akim was very much, because he had just done his Picasso in the 30s, was very much a proponent of that. What does that mean? And how can we show that visually in an exhibition that people will get the story of his life, but also get the importance of his touch, of his brushwork? And as Caitlin says, to slow down. That was from the very beginning. Akim was like, get him to slow down. And still life <laughs> was a, a very important part of our exhibition because it's, again, objects arranged that are so familiar and yet impossibly happening. They can't happen in the way that he has painted them. No matter how he arranged them, how he ends up painting them is not a reality. Absolutely. And and then I was really pleased to see that you'd also, right at the start of your first essay, you quoted Paula Modison Becker, you yes. know, because we have talked about Matisse and Picasso just now, and that's always the sort of prism. But also there were lots of other artists and some of them were women and one of them was Paula Modison Becker. So, Caitlin, do you want to say something about her response to him? Well, I just love that quotation. I mean, it's, you know, he's one of the three or four artists who have struck me like a bolt of lightning or like a thunderstorm. And Paula Motorsen Becker is fantastic. But if I could just go back and, and say one thing on the question of, you know, what Picasso and artists of that generation are, are seeing in Cezanne, through Cezanne's questioning as a painter, painting becomes a medium that is critical of painting. And that is what Picasso sees, right? So there's sort of this meta discussion taking place. In making a painting, you're having a conversation about how a painting can be made. And when you're doing that, you know, you can do that through form, as the cubists would do. You can do that through color, as Fovis and expressionist artists would do. But as I understand that phrase of, you know, why is he the father of us all? It's because there is an intellectual activity that is self-critical in his work. And that's something that resonates, right? That's something that you can see when artists throughout Europe start to encounter his work. It's that let me isolate this particular aspect of what has gone into painting and start criticizing that. And we have the quote of Paula Modersen Becker's response to Cezanne, which that might be a little bit surprising for some viewers because there's not such a direct visual connection necessarily. But we also have Emily Charmy, you know, making views of the Bay of Marseille from Lestoc that are absolutely indebted to what, what she saw in 1907, where she also had her work included. Absolutely. And Gloria, one of the things that I noticed in their responses in the catalogue was that impossibility that you talked about before. The fact that Cezanne still puzzles us, it seems to me, is really vitally important to these artists today. Yes, they're engaging and looking and, and really exploring this artist, but they're also still quite puzzled by what he does. And I think that, that seems to be something that is a continuous element of, of artist responses to Cezanne right from the start. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we examined our paintings in our collection and we tried to kind of figure it out what makes a Cezanne a Cezanne. And, I mean, it's a time-based medium with Cezanne, isn't it? I mean, it's not done in one go. It's these long periods of time, reflection, going back to something, and then sometimes left relatively unfinished. And that's another liberating quality about his work, that a painting, it is finished when he has succeeded in expressing, which may not look finished to our eyes. And I think artists are also very attuned to that quality as well. And the fact that he draws in pencil, 
then he uses blue lines, but then the painting may take on a life of its own as it is being constructed, leaving behind those marks, not for any descriptive reason at all, but as part of, as Caitlin was saying, the making of the painting, that other level, not the subject, but the, the paint itself and the materials used. I'm not an artist, but I have just fallen in love with Cezanne during this exhibition because of slowing down and having looked so much at what he has achieved. Caitlin, I think the looking is really important, isn't it? Because I think I'm not alone in finding, for instance, lots of the early work in particular, really quite difficult. You know, Cezanne is not an easy artist. He's Yes, he's reproduced on chocolate boxes and, and fridge magnets, etc. everywhere. But he makes you work, doesn't he? He absolutely does. He's very difficult. It didn't come easily to him and it doesn't come easily to his viewers. You know, it's, and there's a lot of struggle that you see, but it's also a very beautiful thing. You know, even when you see, you know, a watercolor or a drawing that's been started and then sort of left in this unfinished state, as Gloria is saying, you know, it's incredibly beautiful to see the color, the tonality, the way that, that line and form are working together. They're incredibly beautiful for as difficult as they are. It's been a wonderful discussion. I have one last question. What's happened to the acute accent on his name? Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you asked. It's so important. I mean, our title is Cézanne, sans accent, but we, we don't say that. We have respected the wishes of the family, the fact that Cézanne, when he signed, never used the accent, and that the French did not know how to pronounce the closed E without an accent, and his pronunciation for them, needed an accent. So they just, being Parisians, added the accent, and eventually that became common. But all of the family papers, the family itself, do not use an accent. And they were very pleased when we told them we were going to respect the Cezanne. Well, Gloria and Caitlin, thank you both very much for joining us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ben. Cezanne is at the Art Institute of Chicago from the 15th of May to the 5th of September. It's then at Tate Modern in London from the 5th of October to the 12th of March 2023. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. London Gallery Weekend starts today, the 13th of May, and features 150 galleries across the city. One of them is the Alison Jakes Gallery, which is showing the first ever solo exhibition in the UK of the Moroccan-born artist Nicola L. It comes ahead of Nicola L's first solo exhibition at an institution in the UK at the Camden Arts Centre in 2024. Amy Dawson, our acting digital editor, spoke to Nicola L's grandson, Oliver Lanzenberg, about a work in the Alison Jake show Gold Femme Commode, first made in 1969 and remade in 1993. So this show of your grandmother's work includes 50 years of her practice. Can you summarise how the show has been curated? What can we expect to see? Sure, yeah. It's it's actually an incredible survey of so many elements of her work. You know, she she worked from the early to mid 60s till when she passed in 2018 and she worked in so many different mediums within the visual arts world not just painting but also uh, sculpture and furniture and a lot of film work Um, and though this show does not show any of the film work it's a really cool survey of bringing just different segments of her art and her life together in, in one room and what I think is a very comprehensive way.
Nice. And the specific work that you want to talk about is Gold Femme Commode from 1969-1993. And it's essentially a painted wooden chest of drawers in the form of a body, a very curvaceous body. Can you tell me more about the work and why it's so important to Nicolas Oeuvre? Yeah, I, I love talking about this piece. It was a piece originally conceived in 1969. It's a dresser in the form of a woman where... There are shelves in the place of where her eyes, nose, mouth, breasts, stomach, and vagina would be. Femme commode literally translates from French to a woman dresser, but the word commode can also connote convenience or easy, so it kind of, there's also kind of like easy woman connotation to that title. That kind of leads us to the overarching theme of the piece, which is that this is a woman object. And that's something actually that came up in a lot of her work over the years. She's very functional and convenient, and I would say nice to look at. But beyond that, she's an object. She is an inanimate object. So in 1995, Nicola had a show at the Rej Baghumian Gallery in New York City. That mostly centered on her femme fatale pieces, which were these like wall-mounted collage-esque works that each centered on a different woman that Nicola deemed a femme fatale from history. So we're talking, you know, strong, independent, incredible women that, that didn't take shit from anybody. And so Nicola thought it'd be interesting to c- contrast that uh, with the femme commode. So what she did is she she produced another you know, a few more femme commode, each in a different color, and place them in the middle of the gallery, surrounded by the femme fatale as like a clear and distinct contrast. So one of those pieces from that show in 1995 is with us today <laughs> at the Alice and Jack Gallery here in London. Uh, yeah, 27 years later, I did the math earlier today. It's pretty exciting to, to see it in person. I wondered if you ever experienced these pieces in a setting at home. Growing up, were these pieces that Nicola had in her own home that you would have seen as a child, or are they purely made for a gallery setting? So, yeah, I, I guess I want to emphasize right now that Nicola was my grandma, and before anything else in her titles in life, uh, I think of her as my, my grandmother. I grew up with a lot of her work in my childhood home, my my father's home. And yeah, you know, we back then had different lamps, these like functional, really beautiful pieces that we just literally used to to light our home or or couch to to lay on. And I didn't think much about them except I thought they were beautiful and that I knew they were my grandma's, so they were cool, but we did not treat them like preciously at all. Um, I moved to New York in 2009. Uh, where my grandma lived from the 1970s till about 2017. And we were incredibly close then. We lived together there for about nine years, not in the same house. But she lived at the Chelsea Hotel in Chelsea, in New York. And so I'd come by very, very often. And she literally had a femme commode in there at all times. So, so yeah, it was just, it was something I interacted with. I always played with. I'd bring friends over and show them, and they'd be like, whoa, <laughs> like, could I open those things? There's a, the last one she owned was this yellow one that, until it sold recently, it had this scuff of like a, one of, it was like a repairman that came over one day who had like a very like dirty, greasy finger. So on the, the 
right nipple of the femme commode, there's this like thumbprint of like some greasy hand man. <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's great to think of these objects having a real life and a you know a life at home and being loved and used. You touched on the fact that your grandma was living in the Chelsea Hotel, which is kind of unusual. (laughs) Um, She had a very exceptional, interesting life. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background about her biography. Sure, yeah. So she was born in a year that she would never divulge to me, but in the 30s around then in Morocco, um, where she lived a lot of her childhood and and then moved with her French parents back to France, yeah, probably around seven, eight, something like that. And then eventually went to the Beaux-Arts in Paris, where she, she studied to become an artist. She Her career spanned from Paris, you know, back then in Paris, but then kind of really developed in Ibiza a little later, where she met uh, Alberto Greco, who was her mentor for a bit, the Argentinian artist Alberto Greco, produced a lot of important and interesting work, I think, for in my opinion, in Ibiza, but then spent time back in Paris, Belgium, and then eventually New York in 1988, where she, uh, yeah, where she produced sculptural, uh, two-dimensional art, collage, lots of interesting like uh, documentary work, furniture, obviously, tons of stuff. Nicola was really inspired by pop art, particularly when she moved to Paris in the 50s. What was it about this movement that really appealed to her, do you think? I don't think Nicola ever intended to be known as a pop artist, but the very nature of her and the time that she was living in, and when I say the very nature of her, I mean like she's just a very fun and just kind of strange woman. And so I think her personality bled into her work and created pop art. It's crazy to to say that out loud, especially considering like some of her pieces, like the lips lamp and and some of the femme commode, even like the ones with the brighter colors, feel so pop. But to me, I think she just kind of fell into it. You know, at the same time, she was contemporaries with with actual pop artists. Lived in New York at the same time as Warhol, and kind of was in those circles. So it's unlikely that she was not inspired heavily by pop art. But yeah, I guess personality and the scene is kind of what led her into that world. So there's going to be a major survey show of Nicola's work at London's Camden Art Centre in 2024. What can we expect to see? What sort of works and what sort of story will it tell? I think they're still figuring that out. What I hope it is 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 just kind of just a lot like this show today but but on a larger scale. I mean it's it's so beautiful for me to see a large vast body of her work paired together because even though she worked in so many different mediums there's a conversation going on between all these pieces it's all about the body it's about feminism even though she wasn't too explicit about that in her words it's like extremely clear in her art so as you've mentioned lots of Nicola's works incorporate elements of the body especially the female body and you talked about this friction between the femme fatale works and the commodes to what extent would you say that Nicola was a feminist or involved in feminist politics? Yeah, Nicola was an incredibly interesting figure. She had two sons who each had sons. She loved men from a one-to-one perspective. She surrounded all of her best friends and family to that point were men, but 
as you mentioned, women were a central part of her work. I mean, she she grew up as an artist in the 60s and 70s when women's empowerment was blowing up. She had a really interesting take on feminism. But she wasn't really aligned with a lot of the first wave feminists of the time, um, and those were important, amazing women. But I think maybe in France there is a different connotation to feminism. It was kind of there was always a little bit of like a, a negative connotation um, in her mind to like calling herself feminist. That being said, like some of the artists that she surrounded herself with, some of her best friends, like Carrie Lee Schneeman and, and Orlon, were just like, you know, incredibly out there, prolific, you know, I am a feminist artist. I've been thinking more recently about her artwork and how it relates to feminism. And, and actually, I think it's very third wave. It's very, like, of today. So she was a little bit ahead of her time, maybe, but by just, like, creating these pieces that, that pushed the woman's body in the forefront. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Nicola L. is at Alison Jakes in London until the 23rd of July. London Gallery Weekend begins today and continues until Sunday. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Tom and Sophie, Gloria and Caitlin, Amy and Oliver. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.